Okay, all right, I think start now. 2.30, yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming here today. Um, we have an excellent lineup of readers, uh, Lena Valencia, Michelle Sierra Lafitte, and uh, Mary Newell. And um, I'm Matt Waters. This is a show do tell. Uh, this is our third edition, which uh, is impressive for me. That's more commitment than I usually show <laughs> to, to things. Uh, <laughs> so that's a few months. That's 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 big. That's a big moment for me. Um, so it's Lou Reed's uh, birthday today, and uh, I really like Lou Reed. So um, I'm gonna start us off by uh, reading uh, the lyrics to Coney Island Baby, which is uh, my favorite Lou Reed song. And uh, then we'll get this started uh, with, with, with Lena. Uh, but this is a Coney Island Baby by Lou Reed. You know, man, when I was a young man in high school, believe it or not, I want to play football for the coach. All those older guys, they said that he was mean and cruel, but you know, I want to play football for the coach. They said I was a little too lightweight to play linebacker, so I'm playing right in. I want to play football for the coach. Because, you know, someday, man, you got to stand up straight unless you're going to fall. Then you're going to die. And the straightest dude I ever knew was standing right for me all the time. So I had to play football for the coach. And I want to play football for the coach. When you're all alone and lonely in your midnight hour, and you find that your soul has been up for sale, and you get to think about all, all, all the things that you've done, and you're getting to hate just about everything, or remember the princess who lived on the hill, who loved you even though she knew you was wrong. And right now she just might come shining through. And the glory of love, glory of love, glory of love just might come through. And all your two good friends have gone and ripped you off. They're talking behind your back saying, man, you're never going to be no human being. And you start thinking again about all those things that you've done and who it was and what it was and all the different things that made every different scene. Ah, but remember that the city, it's a funny place, something like a circus or a sewer. And just remember, different people have peculiar tastes, and the glory of love, the glory of love, the glory of love might see you through. Yeah, but now, now, glory of love, the glory of love, the glory of love might see you through. Glory of love, the glory of love, the glory of love, the glory of love, the glory of love, now, glory of love, now. Glory of love, now, 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 glory of love, glory of love, give it to me now, glory of love to see you through. Oh my Coney Island baby, now, I'm a Coney Island baby, now. I'd like to send this one out to Lou and Rachel and all the kids at PS122. Man, I swear I'd give up the whole thing for you. Valencia's writing has appeared or is forthcoming in Craft, Joyland, The Master's Review, and elsewhere. She is the managing editor of One Story and has held positions at A Public Space and Bomb Magazine. From 2014 to 2017, she hosted the Hi-Fi Reading Series in Manhattan, which was terrific. She has an MFA in fiction from the New School and is the recipient of a 2019 Elizabeth George Foundation grant. Um, thank you, Matt, uh, for inviting me, and thank you all for coming out uh, on a Saturday afternoon. 
Um, I am going to read um, some excerpts from a short story uh, called Reaper Ranch. Can everyone hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, great. Um, all right. April 24th. Today, after grief group, Nurse Gail gave me this notebook and told me to use it to talk to you. Well, Lee, here goes. Our kids have finally done it. James and Rebecca have sent me to live at Roper Ranch. Reaper Ranch, as you call it. I hope I die, you always say. You always said, I mean, before I end up there. Ha. It's only temporary. If it doesn't work out, I can go home, so they say. I suppose I should be grateful. I'm here in my little apartment listening to the sink drip. James told maintenance about it when he helped me to move in, and they came by to fix it, but it started dripping again right after he left. I have the classical music station cranked up on the radio, but I can still hear the little drips. Thankfully, they allow cats. Zinnia is here with me. She was sulking for the first week or so, but has finally made herself at home. She sleeps on your side of the bed. The ranch is named after Faye Roper, a philanthropist whose husband made his millions in silver mining. He left it all to her when he died, and she opened this place, Roper Ranch, a community for independent senior living. It's not a ranch at all, but there are plenty of decorative iron horseshoe ornaments and other equine embellishments throughout the property. Her daughter Erin runs the place now. My hip aches. That's why I'm here. They say I'm lucky I didn't break it when I fell. They say I'm lucky Lucia was coming in to clean that morning. She found me there on the kitchen floor 30 excruciating minutes after the chair I was standing on gave out from under me, and I went down, clutching the mason jar of loose tea, which shattered all over the linoleum on impact. I lay there, unable to move, paralyzed with pain, inhaling the earthy scent of Earl Grey. The phone was on the wall, less than two yards away. I would give myself five minutes, I decided, and then I would attempt to move. Every five minutes, I slid a little closer. I began to wonder why I was even bothering. At the moment that I was praying for something to happen, fatal heart attack, a plane to crash into the house, Lucia came in, screamed, and called the ambulance, and that was that. They'd already taken the car from me. I dozed off and hit a stop sign shortly after you'd left, and I hadn't been sleeping all that well. And now they've taken the house. All in the name of my well-being, they claim. The ranch makes a big production for the families here. Move-in day is always Sunday when they have the best meals. Sunday brunch and dinner, so you can feel less guilty about ditching your folks at this place. The rest of the week is supremely mediocre. Remember that awful cruise we took to Baja? On the cheap, as was our way, always thrifty. That's kind of what it's like around here. Except instead of booze to pacify you, you have weekly ice cream socials. My Sunday night grief group is one of the many events that one can attend during the week at Reaper Ranch. There's been a spate of deaths here, more so than usual, according to the folks in the group. So Nurse Gale volunteered to host a grief group. It was James who recommended I know, who came, recommended I go, who came with me for the first time. It's fine, something to do. Hazel goes with me. She's one of the few real friends I've made here. They're really big on scheduling you. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I have my water aerobics. Mondays is my lifelong learner's class on great books. Avanda Church on Sunday mornings, if I feel like going, which, if I'm being honest, is not often. Friday is movie night, but the movies they show look dreadful, so I haven't been to one yet. I'd much rather sit with Zinnia in my lap and watch The Comet. Oh yes, that's new. Showed up a couple of weeks after your funeral. Comet, like, Comet Link Iraqi. I have the kids' telescope and can see it from my balcony. It's like God smudged a star. 
<laughs> what else? I've been here three weeks now. Friends came to see me. Jim and Roberta, Pete and his new wife, whose name I can never remember. But they acted strange, like they felt sorry for me. I can't stand it when people feel sorry for me. So I've been spending most of my time alone with this drippy sink and the popcorn ceilings that I stare up at and think about how it will probably be the last ceiling I stare up at. Why did you have to be the one to leave first? You got off so easy. April 30th. Bob from Grief Group has died. Nurse Gale says it, said it was fast in his sleep, the way we'd all like to go. He was like me. He'd lost his wife of 53 years a few months back. He didn't talk much, but no one blamed him. He mostly just sat in the group circle of chairs, nodding as the, as the women broke down in tears talking about their deceased husbands. Nurse Gale was chipper about it, said that every death was an opportunity to learn a little more about ourselves, that each time someone dies, we are brought closer to our true being. I meditate on this thought often. Is death a gift? I'm not sure, but Nurse Gale has some interesting notions. Outside of the group, we say nothing about the deaths. I can't tell James or Rebecca. That's just what happens, Mom, they'd say, and talk about how worried they are about me behind my back, but never actually do anything to help. Kids are supposed to be helpful. Well, not ours. I don't know what we did wrong. It was your brother Bert who helped me after you left. Came all the way out from Massachusetts. He dealt with the paperwork, divided up the clothes, all the mundane tasks that became like, like Sisyphean boulders and ended in me weeping on the floor. I was disoriented, and Bert, and Bert helped write me. But, of course, he couldn't stay forever. He made me promise to call him and check in, but I can't bring myself to do it. I'm lonely, but I'm rarely alone. There's forced socialization here. It's a little fascistic. For your first month, at every meal, you're supposed to try to sit with someone different. And so I met Hazel and Tova. Uh, sorry, Hazel and Robin. Tova, one of the few residents who has a car and still legally drive. Rick and Jean, who came here together voluntarily. Imagine. Everyone has stories about their old lives. Maude was a school teacher, taught kindergarten in Reno for four decades. Robin owned a jewelry boutique in Taos. Tova emigrated here from Tel Aviv and was a legal sec secretary. What did you do, they all ask, in that sad past tense. I tell them I worked for the public library. Oh, they say a librarian. No, I correct them. I was in development. Ah, they trail off and the conversation ends because no one really knows what that means. I can't get too close, though. Bob's death is number six in as many months. Poor Bob. May 14th. This morning, as I was leaving for breakfast, I noticed that her wedding photo had gone missing from the wall. I've not been able to find it, and I'm quite concerned. Did someone take it? Why would they want a photo? How would they have gotten in without keys? Could it have been maintenance? So very strange. The drip, by the way, is quickened to a dribble. You'd think that in Arizona they'd do a better job tending to a wasteful, leaky faucet. I put my watering can under it and use the drippings to water the plants. May 15th. Let me tell you about Hazel. Hazel has maybe two pictures of her family in her room, one of her parents and one of her kids. The rest are photos of when she was younger, usually with celebrities. She'd run with the factory crowd in New York City and later in Los Angeles opened a high-end salon. She offered to do my hair. This place is like college, she said as she massaged conditioner into my scalp. A bunch of strangers living together, sleeping with each other, except instead of dreaming about what we'll become, we dream about what we became. Then she started asking questions about you. How long, were you, how long were we married? How long were you sick? How was I holding up? I told her about us, about your decline, about how empty I felt without you. 
I told her about the missing wedding photo. At this, she was quiet. I was afraid I'd said too much, that perhaps I'd crossed a line with her, that she no longer respected me as the same person. Did you ever consider that he may be trying to reach you? She said. Then it was my turn to go silent. Finally, I said that no, I hadn't considered that. This was a lie, of course. She then asked me if I ever wished I could talk to you. I said yes, all the time. This was the truth. She got a look in her eyes, and suddenly I could see her as a girl, dancing the evening away at some fancy nightclub. She said she knew how to make that happen, and I should come by on the next full moon. I went home and looked at my calendar that appears to me May 30th. My hair is hard and sticky, but it looks good. Hazel does makeup, too. Next time you've got a big date, she said, come to me. I laughed pretty hard at that one. I've barely even worn lipstick since your funeral. Before I left, she gave me a hug and told me to come visit her whenever I wanted. Now I'm alone, missing you, missing our home, staring at the sun setting over the two suns. At least I have them. Xenia is running around the room, pouncing on, on invisible mice, forever a kitten. I'm listening again to the television's murmur on either side of me, the musical stings, the laugh tracks, the muffled voices. Why is the sunset making me cry? Why aren't you here? I miss you, Lee. I need you. Are you trying to show me that you're watching? I tied a string around the faucet today, and that has stopped the noisy drops. May 31st. Hazel has done her ritual. She charged me $5 and a bottle of vitamin water from the vending machines. I know, I know, it's ridiculous. So unlike your practical grace, right? But darling, I guess you could say I've grown soft in my old age, sentimental in my grief. My reasoning. If someone were to hand you a phone and say, dial this number, there's a 0.5% chance you'll reach your deceased loved one, you'd do it, right? What's the harm? <laughs> I helped her switch on about three dozen little electric votive candles, we aren't allowed to have real candles here, and place them around the bedroom. We draped her bed in towels. She shut the blinds and instructed me to lay down on top of the towels and close my eyes, which I did. The room filled with the scent of lavender, and I felt something warm and oily dribbling onto my forehead. I started, but she shushed me and told me to be still and focus on my breath. She kept pouring the liquid, and soon the drizzle became soothing, and I dozed off. What did I dream? I don't remember. The next thing I knew, Hazel was wiping my forehead with a damp cloth and telling me that my third eye was open. So that's that. <laughs> I took the elevator down to my room, feeling refreshed from the nap, but otherwise pretty much the same. June 6th. It's 4 a.m. and I can't sleep. Xenia woke me up again with her mewling. I'm out on my balcony, writing this in the light of an old battery-operated camping lantern. The comet is just barely visible on the horizon. I had this urge to be outside, to breathe something beside the recirculated air of my room. For the first time since you passed, I've been having very vivid dreams. The power of suggestion, or is it actually my third eye? A couple of nights ago, I woke up to the faucet running in the bathroom. Idiot, I thought to myself, you left it on, wasting water, dumb old lady. But I felt something, a presence. And because it was late, because I miss you so much, Lee, I called out your name. When I spoke, the presence disappeared, and I went back to bed and slept fitfully. The following day, I was too exhausted to go to water aerobics. I stayed in my room and tried to read, but could not focus. I'm ashamed to admit it, but after dinner, I turned on the television and found a nature documentary about undersea creatures. I became engrossed, hypnotized by the gently waving kelp forests and the erratic darting fish of many colors. I must have fallen asleep. When I woke, there was a man in my room. I tried to scream, but I was frozen. He was an older man. He looked familiar. 
I'd seen him around. My fear softened to compassion. He just walked into the wrong room. But there was something strange about him, something off. His eyes didn't seem to register mine. To register mine. Are you lost? I managed to say, but it echoed as if I were talking into a tunnel. He, he faced me then, his eyes boring into my own. His pupils were huge, leaking out to the rims of his irises. It was Bob. He opened his mouth and blood began to dribble out the side, running down his teeth and chin and finally onto the floor. When I finally got my wits about me, I pressed the emergency call button outside the bathroom door because it was all I could think to do. I turned back to where he'd been, and he was gone, a puddle of water in his place. The nice man who works the night shift at the front desk came, and I told him it was nothing, nothing, so sorry. I mopped up the puddle of water from the floor with a dish rag. Well, Lee, perhaps it's good that I'm writing all this down. They say it helps with memory, and if my mind is truly leaving me, then at least I'll have a record of it. I can't help but wish, if only it was you that I'd seen. Thank you. Elena, thank you for sharing that. Excellent. Um, so the, the line that really struck me was Hazel saying here, you talk about what you became opposed to in college, what you might become. That seemed to kind of sum up like a almost existential dilemma for the character and the people here. So I was wondering what, what attracted you to write these this kind of person in this type of situation. Um, so this uh, situation, not the character, but definitely the situation, was um, inspired um, by uh, watching, you know, my grandmother move into independent living facility. Um, you know, my, my my father and my uncles kind of. It was it was time. Like she's, you know, she was in her 90s, and it was time. Um, but it was really hard to watch because she's like this super independent woman, and it's hard to watch someone who's lived this very, this like very independent life and built this community, and it's hard to watch that be kind of taken from them in some ways. Um, and uh, and so I, um, I don't know, I, a lot of my fiction I kind of write to try to understand those situations in a different way, so that was where the story kind of, kind of came from, is, you know, what would it be like to have that independence taken from you, in your, in your mind, you think it's being taken from you. Like, um, other people might think it's, you know, like, the right thing to do. And so. what made you want to use, or how, how do you feel about writing in a diaristic uh, for, format? Like, um, Writing in a diaristic format is really fun. It's a great way to get into the head of a character. Um, and um, and it's really, like, rhythmically, it's really fun to break. You can, it's kind of easy to break things up. Um, there are some challenges, um, some of the challenges, you can't do things like, it's hard to write dialogue, <laughs> um, and you do have to, you have to kind of, you have to, so you have to cheat a little bit, um, you know, uh, there's also like always the question like, well, you know, does the, does the character actually write the way a writer does? So there's like this, you have to kind of create the suspension of disbelief. Um, and it's also, it's a little bit challenging to create um, a, you know, you have to work with the reliability of the narrator um, because you don't, since you don't really see anyone kind of pushing against her, um, it's hard to create a, a reliable, a reliable narrator. So, something I'm still working on. Well, I, I think we all enjoyed it. So, yeah. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Right. Thank you.
Michelle Sierra Lafitte is a Mexican-born writer, journalist, and editor based in New York. Her fiction work has appeared in Joyland and Evergreen Review. Her nonfiction work has been published in magazines and outlets including Reuters.com, The New York Times, Chicago Tribune, The Washington Post, CNN, Expansion, and MSNBC. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the New School and a Master's of International Affairs from Columbia University. She lives in Brooklyn. Michelle. of a short story called El Invisible in Spanish, which means the invisible. So somebody's invisible. Um, this guy. All right. I want to fall off. Oh. Is that the level that you want? Yeah, it's good. And okay. you want to adjust the Thanks. height of the microphone? Because I moved, oh. Look at those pobres cabrones, I said, pointing with my beer bottle at the TV screen that Maribel, my four kids, and my compadre's children, two of the upstairs neighbor's kids and I had watched that Sunday since the afternoon. <laughs> What's wrong? Maribel asked in Spanish. Nothing. I'm just fed up. The 9 o'clock Sunday newsman talked about a group of migrants that had departed that morning from Honduras. A thousand or so brown and broke, marching through Mexico to Los Estados Unidos, camping on the dirt, jumping on trains, showing their white armbands and dirty faces, but not the hope in their hearts. See, I could have been more compassionate. After years in Gringolandia, I had seen my share of immigrant sadness. But I was feeling shitty after an afternoon locked up in the house that my kids and I had shared for two months with my compadre and his children in Queens. I was fed up of leaving the arrimado, of my bad luck that got more canija since the fire at Lucy's three months earlier. Looking for a job in the city that morning, I had run into Renato, one of the delivery boys on Lexington. When Renato had asked me why I didn't go back to work when Lucy reopened, I lied. I found a better chamber, brother, I said, promised to visit them at the diner, and left. I was shaking, furioso, of how much time I'd lost waiting for La Puta phone call. An idiot had left some paper towels by the stove, and the whole back of the kitchen burned. I, it started while I was in the basement, storing carrots inside the big freezer. When I came out, the stove was burning and everyone else was gone. I almost didn't make it out alive. Like those Mexicans, remember? With fake names and social security numbers who disappeared in the World Trade Center. No one could say, say their names out loud or build them a fountain because once they died on live TV, the consulate couldn't even find a wallet. The owner of Lucy's paid us half a week's wages, sent us home, and said not to worry, that they would call us when the diner was up and running. I had sent the managers a WhatsApp, and then called him and left a message, but I never heard back. 
a month went by, another. Pinche Gris. Why not to say, sorry brother, we don't need you anymore. I should have known better than to expect straight answers from these people. One of the things I've learned about gringos in the 18 years I've lived here is that they would rather stick a fork under their thumbnail than tell you the truth to your face. I turn off the TV. We have to go back. Back where? said Maribel. To Mexico. To Mexico? You're crazy, said Maribel. You go. I'm not going anywhere. I sank in my chair, drowning my wishes to push back because now she's bringing all the money. Since the fire at Lucy's, we tried to live on the land that she makes, but cleaning houses doesn't pay nearly as good as the nanny job she used to have. Soon, we lost the Roosevelt Avenue house where she and I had rented rooms to other Mexicans. The landlord, who I had thought was mi brother, said he needed to move out. We needed to move out. I asked him to be patient. We've been renting from him for years. We're practically familia, I said. I run a business, not a charity. By the end of the week, he found a new tenant, and Maribel, Kimberly, Brian, Lachano, Rocco Jr., and I were on the street. For days after that, I had insomnia. Rolling on my borrowed bed, my children between Maribel and me, on the floor or on the mattress next to us. I would wonder whether one day I too would evaporate like boiled water. I had little idea where I was going to find the willpower to find to look for another job, cleaning roofs, painting walls or houses, or riding a bike in the rain delivering pizza. Without papers, that was pretty much what was in store for me. I wasn't lazy. I wasn't. Since I was nine, working had come as natural as reading or shitting. Want to eat, brother? Go try to get hired at the Kool-Aid factory. Carry boxes at the, in the supermarket. And if that didn't work, clean windshields or juggle balls for tips at the crossroad. Simple as that. Dying like a dog in this country wasn't going to cut it. I didn't know how I could keep quiet and not punch the pink face of the next gringo culero that forgets to leave a tip when I bring in his nachos. Or when a rich Blanca pulls her bag or her culo away from me on the queue, as if I had superpowers and I could rape her with telepathia. I was fed up with this life, this country, and its people, and I wanted to get the fuck out. Three weeks after I first saw the migrants on TV, after combing the city asking for work, I returned to a Joker's basement apartment and found my daughter walking out with that Kevin guy with a shaved head who says he's a senior but looked like he's in the army or in college and instead he's still in high school fucking colegiales. What are you doing here? I asked since it was 3 in the afternoon and she never came home before 5. Fixing her hair and clothes, she said art class had been canceled and her friend had given her a ride on his Vespa. Judging by her apple red cheeks and the living room's carpeta, which looked as if a cat had just sharpened its claws on it. I could have sworn that they had been revolcándose on it. They said goodbye at the door. She's standing on the tip of her toes to reach his face, offering herself as if I weren't there, standing right next to them. 
he kissed her on the lips, put his hands low on her back, right above the nalgas, and pushed his verga, showing from his sweatpants against her. I bit my knuckles. He could fuck my door all right, but if I were so much as to touch a blanco, I could go to jail, I would go to jail derechito. Kimberly, la niña de mis ojos, was 15 and already only interested in them. She liked their blonde hair, yellow like corn silk, their big shoulders, their height, their pink skin that never tans, their tattoos that back in Mexico were the kind of thing only jailmates and gangbangers have. She's proud of her freckles and her light, light olive skin, which she got from her mother, dark enough to make her stand out from her white classmates, but not brown like mine. A shade of copper that makes people look at you and think, color, or worse, speck. When people told her, oh my god, you don't look Mexican, she glowed, as if that person had just told her, Chula, you should compete in Miss Universe. Because if she looked Mexican, she'd be dark, poor, short, and ugly, like her papa. And she couldn't even get a job waiting tables, because the waiting jobs only go through los nacos. Mi Kimberly used to love to eat chips while she watched her football with me hold the jalapeño in her hand and take break bites while eating her rice and beans. Sing a chorrito, wrap her arms around my neck and drown me in best. That made me so proud. Now, she wants nothing to do with Mexico. Or with me. No singing or talking in Spanish. No spicy candy or mangoes with lime and chili. The black beans, she won't touch. Calls them Bambi's caca. She just wants to eat pita bread with that hummus mierda, raw fish and rice with chopsticks, and baby carrots. As if that comida de blancos could wipe her Mexicans from the inside out. What are you doing with ese way? I asked Kimberly after he left. Nothing? You can't see him no more. Why not? Because he just wants to sleep with you. She looked at me with the icy eyes of an Aztec princess dealing with the town's poor. No matter how much my invasion had insulted her, she'd approach it with the cold-heartedness she had learned from Los Gringos. Kimberly hated it when her brothers yelled, or her mother's voice broke when she was about to cry, and would never take part in any house telenovela, which she considered below her. She was above that, above me, above all of us. And if I still doubted it, she said, I'm 15, Papa. What if I'm the one who just wants to sleep with him? I blinked and blinked again. If one of my sisters had talked like that to my father when she was growing up in Mexico, le hubiera tirado los dientes. But in a country like this one, your kids grow up knowing they have rights. No matter if their words can make you cry, here they get to keep their teeth, because they can take you to court if you smack them. 
A week after I ran into Renato, the caravan hit Mexico City. I watched from TV the migrant protest around El Ángel de la Independencia. They asked for basic things, like food, or not getting killed on the street. Not a lot, really, within the big bucket of things one could ever wish for. People born in this country, who have so much, are convinced they deserve everything. Give me, give me, give me, they say in a non-stop letania. Maybe my rights needed to be respected too. My needs met, my complaints heard, and I deserve a house, a car, and a flat screen, just because my name is Rocco Ramirez. One day, when bagging groceries as a kid in Mexico, a rich Ruka gave me a Tootsie when I was done stuffing her bags. Be careful not to drop it, she said. If you do, la va a chupar el diablo. Which meant that if the lollipop fell on the floor, the devil would suck on it and ruin it. It was perhaps just a tale to prevent me from getting more warmth in the belly. Still, I held it extra tight between my fingers. As a kid, candy came rarely, and I didn't want to lose my precious cherry treat, much less so to the devil. Now, watching those migrants raise their arms on signs below the monument to Mexico's freedom, it made me think that when you are illegal, you have nothing, no rights, no promises of nada. Besides a little wage to rent the basement apartment and Western Union some cash, you have no nice clinics, no doctor besides the huesero who will rub your back aching from carrying beer cases or paint cans. More than soft, I've been spat at by the devil. The shakiest lollipop can survive a little kiss from the chamuco. But once the devil spits on you, that's it. You're truly jodido. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. It's really intense pocket. <laughs> I, I love what I'm reading it. And um, the thing that really left out, I mean, when I was thinking about like, something to ask you is, is how powerful the voice is and how honest and blunt the voice is. And despite that, there's still subtext at play, especially I, I thought in the scene his daughter and her boyfriend, and uh, there's a lot that the reader can take. It has a lot of depth at home. So I wanted to ask, like, how challenging is it for you to be able to make that subtext happen amidst this voice, which is very blunt, and kind of saying basically everything that's on his mind, given the situation he's in when he's telling the story, um, which maybe you could also talk about if, if you'd like to. Uh, but yeah. Alright. Thanks, man. Yeah. So this is a story about a Mexican guy who's been here 18 years, and one day he just decides that he can't take it. He can't stay here anymore. He sees these people crossing the border, and he just decides he doesn't want to be here anymore. It's a story about dignity and about what he's lost by coming here. So. There is a lot of anger in Rocco's voice. He is frustrated, and definitely his life here is not what he would have expected to be. So that I knew, 
I, I don't really sketch my characters, but I knew that Rocco was going to be angry. And then after writing more of the story and, and, and finding out more about his family, um, in my mind, I kind of realized that, that there were several layers to Rocco. And the first layer is this, like, this guy that is really angry and fed up. And then right under it, it's, there's a lot of pain. And, and right below, or this, this, the, the, the context of all this, is his lost dignity from his wife, from her, his daughter. And later on, he tries to get deported several times and he cannot do it. So it's just sort of, it's just sort of like this comedy of errors and nothing works for him. Not even this, right? So that's, that's pretty much. And I think uh, someone in the audience had a question they wanted to ask, possibly, or... Uh, no. All right. I will. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for the uh, Yeah, we'll take a um, 10 minute break, uh, reconvene 3 15, 3 16 uh, for Mary Newell, whose book is amazing and it's right over there if you want to check it out, talk to her about it. And uh, looking forward to that. Uh, 3 15. Thanks. Thanks for being here. for the coach and all the older guys they said he was real mean and cruel but you know I want to play football for the coach I could do the hundred and about point nine with my clothes on right not bad huh I want to play football for the coach though you know I was a little too lightweight to go out for, you know, linebacker, so I was trying for right end. Want to play football for the coach? Because I'll tell you something, man, someday you got to stand up straight or else you're going to fall. And then you're going to die. Straightest dude I ever knew would stand there right by me all the time. So as you know, I had to play football for the coach. I want to play football for the coach. Find that your soul 
Yeah, it's been up for sale. And you start to think about all the things that you've done. And who you didn't ever help the scene you hated every single one. But remember the princess who lived on the hill.
his house the bodiless come to barter endlessly vision, wisdom, for bodies palpable as his and weighty. Hands moving move priestlier than priests' hands, invoke no vain images of light and air, but sure stations in bronze, wood, stone. Obdurate in dense-grained wood, a bald angel blocks and shapes the flimsy light. Arms folded, watches his cumbrous world eclipse inane worlds of wind and cloud. Bronze dead dominate the floor, resistive, ruddy-bodied, dwarfing us. Our bodies flicker toward extinction in those eyes, which, without him, were beggared of place, time, and their bodies. Emulous spirits make discord, try entry into nightmares, until his chisel bequeaths them life livelier than ours, a solider repose than death's. Mary Newell lives in the Lower Hudson Valley. Her chapbook, Tilt Hunger Beer, was recently published by Cotthill Press in January 2019. Her poems were published in Blaze Box, Dispatches from the Poetry Wars, Spoon River Poetry Review, Entropy, Hopper Literary Magazine, Earth's Daughters, Written River, About Place, etc. She has also written reviews and essays including Shades of Melancholy, Darker Moods and Dickinson's Poetry, and Melancholia, Hinges and Dominant Liminia. Sorry about that. Uh, by Will Alexander, Heller Levinson, and Mary Newell. Dr. Newell, uh, MA Columbia, BA Berkeley, received a doctorate from Fordham University in American Literature and the Environment. She saw literature and writing at Fordham University, West Point, and other colleges. She has a continuing interest in spiritual and ecological resonances. Thank you, Mary. Yeah. Right. Um, hi, I can't see any of you now, but that's just still there. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, thanks. Um, so, uh, this is my chapbook, Tilt Cover Beer, and I have some for sale over there. It's, uh, even though it's a short book, it has three sections which go along with the title. Um, and I don't know how most people write, but in my case, the title came afterwards. Um, you write things, and then you sort of find out what you're doing or what you're, what it's revolving around. So, um, so I, I think of the tilt as being on the planetary scale, like what the planet's doing, and beer is what we're doing, which I'll read the first poem kind of relates to that. And the hover is kind of in a way is in between. Enough said about that. So um, I'm going to start with a beer poem. And all the poems in the book basically are built around a, a particle in the pith of. So pith, I know it's just New York and nobody believes that nature exists in New York, but it does. I mean, but so the pith is the sort of central uh, core of plants. Stems. And the interesting thing about it is, you think of pith, maybe you think of a heart of something, but it's actually hollow or spongy, which means it has emptiness in it. And because it has emptiness in it, it can carry the nourishment uh, to the plant. So that's kind of at least part of how I'm thinking of, of pith. It's 
getting to what's inside through what isn't. In the pit of beer. And uh, this particular poem is based on um, a quote from a really neat book called Finding Your Way on Land or Sea. Um, and it goes like this. This is supposed to be factual. Among the majority of people, the full blindfolded deviation circle is formed in about half an hour. What that means is if you're taken into the wilderness blindfolded and let loose, uh, within half an hour, most likely, if you're like most people, you'll end up back where you started. I'm sorry to laugh. It's not really funny, but... Um, <laughs> I'm taking over David's wrong. I'm doing stand-up. <laughs> but it's very human. Anyway, that's where we are uh, in my reading. So this is called In the Pit of Veer. The perfect circle, completion, unity, where, outside geometry... Earth's axis marks an oval, tilts and wobbles. Blindfolded, most circle back to where they started. The tilt from a slightly longer leg creates a swerve, nudges toward a circle in roughly half an hour. On the verge of getting somewhere, the slight deflection, a moment's inattention, a stray remark, a bright distraction, a veer, to end up here, back where we know the ropes that hold us, can circle morph into spiral, in time, in time. So, uh, if you like, you can just hold the applause till the end, assuming you want to applaud. Plenty <laughs> 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 of time to decide between now and then. So, let's do it that way. Um, this uh, second poem was really inspired by the Hudson River, um, which I live near. The Hudson River is an interesting river because it flows in two directions. And it actually flows down in New York, believe it or not. And also, it has a um, tide from the Atlantic that flows all the way up to Troy, which is fairly far north. Um, but this also applies to other situations than being out on a river. Um, but that's the imagery. It's called Intersection Witness. Say the wakes of a sailboat and a plump of mallards intersect. Many V's flange out behind their gliding. Plankton pushed to the V arms roll over with turbulence, spuming, while in between the water is slick. The wakes run interference on the tide, deforming waves that lap the shore. Say, someone standing on shore tries to unravel that rippling skein, tracing backwards from the waves, while her wrapped companion sways to the undulations as the laps refresh her feet. In the pith of intersecting weights, say, life is complex, perplexing, has beauty, has pattern, has meaning somewhere within that tangle or in its witnessing. Can I control your audience after a second? <laughs> 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 okay. um, this is a hover. This is one of my favorites in here. Authors are allowed to have favorites too. 
Uh, but I'll be interested to hear what yours are, if any. Um, this is called In the Pit of Hover. When we stand still, our head's weight tilts us forward. Momentum prompts movement to resist falling. Wing flaps let some birds hover, a strenuous mid-air suspension. Kestrel matches wind speed head-on, poised in transparency to foresee. Osprey hangs still to focus on foraging. Hummingbird parades his ball and socket shoulder joint, his wing lift on upbeats as well as down, skates figure eights before the trumpet flower's throat, sits deep, flashes luminescence, wheels away. We are left staring at vacancy, sensing wake turbulence, vortex from activated wings. Sometimes we wait alert, thirsty for an intimation, an evanescent summons, wait, just in case. It's your favorite afterthought. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this poem is called In the Pith of Attenuation. It's a little more abstract, but attenuation sort of drawing something out, waiting, 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 so it kind of relates to hover in a certain kind of way. Um, in the pith of attenuation, excruciate at the crossroads, chiasmic tangle, climacteric muddle, Janus pole, cross wires, warp wrap, heed elusive, scale nuance, interval trill, Attune, murmuration. I left a line out there. <clears throat> so, I'm going to do it again. Does everyone know what murmuration is here? No. No. Okay, it's a very exciting event um, in chaos theory and also in bird life. Um, birds, they're birds that eat insects, uh, they come out at night. Um, Remind me of the names of some of the birds that do that. I'll think of it in a minute. Owls. They, pardon? Owls. Nocturnal. Uh, swifts. Swifts. And so when it comes to be dusk, um, I, I spent two hours watching this in Oregon where I had gone because nobody in New York is working on eco-criticism and I just had to be around people I could talk to. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I came back though. <laughs> um, and it's really exciting. I, I highly recommend it. Um, they fly around, and each of them is kind of doing their own thing, and they're catching insects, uh, which they eat. And they're all flying, and they're all over the place. And, and gradually you see these kind of clouds forming, and as it gets more towards sunset, they form these beautiful vortex waves, and they all become a pattern, a swirling pattern, and then in this case, the ones that I watched were going into a tall chimney, which is the best they could find for a cave, so they swirl around and then they all dive in, and it really looks orchestrated, but it's self-organized, so it's, it's a beautiful example of, of physics, I suppose, and, and bird life. And that's called murmuration. Murmuration, yeah. So it's, it's, you can probably do it online if you, you know, if you can't get to work on it. We have we have murmuration in New York too. I'm just kidding. Um, so, pardon. So I left out a line. So where should I start from? I'm going to start. 
Pardon? The beginning. Okay, I, I'll do this. Thank you, Amber, for asking for it. That's what I prefer. In the pit of attenuation, excruciate at the crossroads, chiasmic tangle, climacteric muddle, Janus call, cross wires, rap warp, heed elusive, scale nuance, interval trill, attune, consonance throb, murmuration. Yeah, my one political poem in here, which um, which my uh, which not everybody likes. I mean, I, I, w I was advised to leave it out of the book, but here it is anyway. <laughs> Over bad head, it's not my fault. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's called in the pit of after days. You won't recognize it as being political. It's not overtly, but I think you'll get it. <clears throat> Snowpox, wind scatter, lint retrieval, doleful readout, tender, quaint, customs remembered in sketch, deflections without conviction of purpose, revived with plans for the yet to be, the present still hard to imagine. That's the low point of the book. So we have to read something. Well, there's other low points, but. What is this, a self-confession? <laughs> but most of my low points have, you know, their moments. <laughs> I don't like to end on a low point. That one just did. I couldn't help it. <clears throat> so we'll go, we'll go to a lower point, but it has some resolution. This is um, a poem which refers to a pottery technique uh, in Japanese pottery. I'm not a potter, but I lived in Japan for a year, and there's a wonderful technique called kintsugi, or kintsugi, depending on which part of Japan you're in, um, which is a sort of restoration technique. If something valuable breaks, a piece of pottery breaks, it's valuable. It can be repaired using precious metals, which are mixed with a lacquer and put in the cracks, and, and that is referred to in this, in this poem. So it makes a new beautiful object out of the broken object. In the pith of breakdown, rose draws in petals at dusk, forgets to relinquish clutch at sunrise. The world a rack stretched pervious or unbearable, shatter, breakout, rally, a plea for kintsugi, cracks filled, precious, meander, fusion, sheen, luster, reclaim, gold or platinum, neat or overflow, gratitude for the flow that seals the ruptures. That is, where should we go from there? Uh, hmm. How am I doing on time? Yeah. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, you gotta go. Thanks for coming, Susie. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I planned that. No. <laughs> um, hmm. Okay.
I'm hovering here. Uh, um, this is a poem about origins, sort of personal origins. And it's called In the Fifth of Origins. A pulsing, gelatinous mesh buffered in warm wobble drifts, suspended, then thrust out, lifeline severed, tied up and tucked away, breath reticent in estranging air, barraged by smog, electronic hiss, wedged in the muck of aggregation, dense subtractors quell sidereal yearnings, quicksand promises, pole star simulacrums, strangulating options, the pull of the void. A love pulse persists around these tatters, unperturbed, offering succor in dire need. Beneficence ripples through the silence, imperceptibly, like stardust wafting by. What kind of poem would you like to hear next? <laughs> Let's see. This one. Um, this one is called Peregrination into the Pit. I'm hearing the music, so it's distracting me, but I'll do my best not to lead to the musical tempo. <laughs> to seek the tongues of inwardness, the slightest Stir invites a deeper listening. Detour for hence, for evidence too tenuous for clinging. Ingress to the enigmatic, to heed a wordless invocation, attuned to overtones of reciprocity, expanse, to retrace footprints just here and here the root back subtly altered, many pathways wind toward home. And I think just one more. Yeah, one more. All right, and here it is. This is called In the Pit of Swerve. The new sidles in between the hinges, knows your name, recites arcane instructions, dissolves into mist when you ask for clarity. The swerve a sound, excuse me, the swerve astounds with its flare, but means to unseat you, hiding within your sight, peeping through barricades, seeking only to bloom. Thank you. Um, something yeah, you might, uh, you can hear the, the poems, but if you check out the book, you can also see how they're formatted mm -hmm. in a fa often fascinating way. And I was just uh, wondering um, when in your, in your process that arises uh, in your mind, uh, how to format something or ideas for how it might look on the page. Is it early or is it to write? 
first and then maybe look at it and, and see, or is it kind of on a case-by-case -case basis? Yeah, it's an interesting question because the shape, many of the poems started as words and then they got their shape. But I think I was think, I've been thinking about the book uh, this week since I knew I would have a chance to talk about it. <laughs> and um, this doesn't sound like an answer, but we'll get there. I was thinking how, in a way, I, I've been trying to relate what the mind does and what the instinct does. It's like the mind makes these patterns, like uh, geometry, seeing the sun going, you know, the earth going around the sun, seeing the tilt and all that, which is kind of abstract, but beautiful in its own way. And then the sort of sense you get, like going through the year. I mean, there's one poem that goes through the year here. I didn't read because you really need to see it. But the sense you get moment to moment, like when the birds first come in the spring, or you know uh, when the finches turn yellow again, or um, you know the equinox, the times of year when you sort of you just sort of sense something changing. So how those two things relate together? So I think part of the spacing is is um, what it feels like, but part is also the timing of it. Um, you know, because it, it's just sort of like this happened and this happened, this happened, but what is it like to experience that? You know, and not just rush through it and get it over with so you can talk about it. You know, so it, a lot of it has to do with that. And the breath, of course, spacing for the breath. A lot of times when I was reading the book, I, I felt like I was being kind of dropped off into a moment uh, by, by you as a writer. You kind of take the reader and kind of leave them. I, I felt like I was being kind of left somewhere before I turned the page. Um, so yeah, yeah, and a lot of it I, I felt like yeah. My 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 favorite my favorite piece was um, uh, our poem was intersection witness, but I, I felt like that idea of, of witnessing uh, is kind of prevalent um, throughout. So what I was wondering, my question is. Um, how hooked into writing itself do you do you feel um, like do you feel there, there's a there's a connection that you're trying to draw out between the writing process and the natural world or, or the organic world possibly in terms of um, uh, yeah that's kind of my, my question is is that somewhere you're trying to take uh, the reader or or a point that that might you might be trying to put across or maybe I should try it that way because I write myself uh, possibly uh, so I don't know what, what do you think? That's an interesting question. I love what you said about being taken somewhere and dropped off. I mean, there's definitely one when I read about evening that's like that. Yeah, you know, it's like you get left in the woods more or yes. less. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think that's my attempt, and I'm I'm happy to hear that we're in sharing an experience. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Wordsworth is famous for saying poetry is about a recollection of feeling, but I, I, I think um, recollection is different from recreating. So the extent to which you can, a language can sort of recreate at least part of the experience. It doesn't have to be even in the same context, you know, that the writer experienced it in. I mean, but, but it brings something uh, vital alive. And, and so, I mean, I was also thinking about the feeling in this book, because as you see, it's mostly not about like person-to-person -person interaction. But so I think the main feeling tone, can I? Oh, yeah, you know, by all means. It is wonder. It's really wonder. It's a kind of uh, here's the world, and this is the world we've mostly overlooked, you know, because we're busy doing whatever we're doing, and wow, this is happening and that's happening. 
you know, and what does it mean to a person moving through it? So I, I think, you know, that's that's what I see anyway, is kind of the main, you know, fulcrum. Cool. There is one. Yeah. And uh, don't forget the book is available to you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful title. Uh, from what I can hear, in the tilt hover view, even though you segregated them in terms of defining and definition, I sense and that there's interparticipation, refraction between all three of them. Am I correct about that? Right? Um, well, I suppose it has to be, since okay. the same person wrote them. Okay, so the, yeah. then my question, that part B of that, since you committed to that, is where in the hover is the veer? <laughs> you would. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, right. Well, yeah, that has to do with attentiveness, right? Because the hover poem that I read with the, in the bird's case, you know, has to do with attentiveness. So if there's a veer and hover, then probably you don't get your prey if you're a bird. But you could veer toward. You could veer toward, right. You could take advantage of wind currents and all of that. I might not have an answer. Just so, no, no, so it's an interesting question. So veer, veer could happen for accidentally, or it could happen because you're sensitive to environmental conditions and you take advantage of them in a creative way, right? Or somebody new comes into the room that you weren't expecting and you had some plan in mind of who you're going to talk to and then you find this person is someone you want to talk to and so Actually, it enriches and enlarges. The hover could be, the veer could be where the hover, uh, where the hover stops and if you're going for prey and you're hovering, then the veer could be the act of the escape from the hover, right? Well, a veer by definition is not where you thought you were going, but maybe it's where you meant to go. Ah. But, right, so it's a, de it's a deflection, but uh, it's a deflection that may or may not end up in something more interesting. That's a good tilt. <laughs> All right. All right, well, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming to the uh, third edition for the program. Mary Hill, being here, and um, come next month, I think, uh, April... Sixth, uh, we use our phones for everything. Yes, April sixth will be our next one, and I uh, hope to see you. I'm Matt Waters. Uh, have a great day. Have a nice day. Thank you.